Greetings, fellow citizens of Disneyland. Bricky here. I know it's been a minute since I put up a podcast, but I'll do a quick explanation, but try not to make this too much about me. In 2020, when I started doing this show weekly, it was a way different landscape in that I had a lot more free time and all of my co-hosts had a lot more free time. And since then, good thing, the world has changed and everybody's gotten a lot busier, including myself. And I have really focused on YouTube because as a content creator that has a very small audience, I always go where the feedback is. And as I was putting up podcasts, there was really no feedback. I wasn't getting anything from the audience to tell me that it was justifiable to keep going. And despite me also being a narcissist, it's just nice to know that all the hard work you're putting in is paying off somewhere and meaning something to someone. But because I am very receptive to feedback because customer service is a big part of my job, over the last week, I've had a lot of people say, hey, is the podcast ever coming back? Are you going to be recording a podcast again? And so I thought about what could the best format be for realistically creating Disneyland for Designers weekly because any podcast that's bi-weekly or monthly it just it's not a ritual for the people that are producing it it's not a ritual for the audience and for these things to take off they have to be a ritual they have to be part of routine so i thought about it and i thought well what if i just go solo what if i just sit down on monday look back on the week that was pontificate my thoughts and ideas on where the park is going and give you a report on what it was like to have been there because i do get to go every week and i try not to take that for granted and even though a lot of these topics will have already been talked about by several other YouTubers and podcasters, and including myself, here on the podcast, you just have more room and space to get a little bit deeper into your ideas and to really kind of think out what exactly is happening without the high pressure of a camera in front of your face or a TikTok that's only going to give you X amount of precious seconds. So I did it. I explained it in two minutes. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to say that this is going to stay forever, but I am going to say that if you tell me that you're enjoying it, it'll inspire me to keep doing it. Let's look back on the week that it was, May 30th through June 5th, the first official week of summer at the Disneyland Resort. So the big takeaway of last week was on May 31st, which was, you know, I guess that first day after Memorial Day holiday weekend, which is going to be a time when a lot of people are going to be in town. A lot of people have time off and the park's going to be flooded with, you know, out of towners and not as much as locals because locals kind of know that the holiday weekends are the weekends to stay away. But that's going to be when Disney's going to really bang the drum on that out of town money. And right after that holiday pass, they did what is always feels kind of like a sneak attack from corporate America where they do the one-two punch. Punch number one is people started to find out, not through an official press release I ever saw of Disney, but people started to find out through OC Register and prominent blogs and bloggers that the Magic Key Passes were sold out. And I want to say not sold out, put on pause, I think is a way more realistic way to say this. But essentially, there's these psychos that are always looking to renew a pass that's not expired it's like bro why are you trying to pay a bill before it's a bill that's the poor kid mentality inside of me but also uh you couldn't sign up for a new magic key and my neighbor recently has just kind of fallen back in love with the parks and he got his magic key i believe like a week before i saw him yesterday and i said you are indiana jones you just got that magic key right before the big ball was going to smash you so the one-two punch, punch number one, they put the magic keys on what I'm going to say, pause, not exactly sold out because there is inventory for it. They're just choosing not to sell it. Why are they choosing not to sell it? My biggest theory, my biggest takeaway is because prices are going up. They want to just kind of lock everybody where they're at for a moment, let summer pass, and then let the price go. I'm predicting somewhere between a 20 to 40% increase. Over the last year, everything has gone up drastically in price. I went to the automated car washer, you know, the car washer you put your credit card in and, or change in if you still have change, one of those psychos. And even it had gone up a dollar. Like, really? Even the car wash is up a dollar? But regardless, 
I believe that it's all around pricing. And if you want to hear more about that, I did a isolated news video over on the YouTube channel where Wednesdays I take one or a couple of topics that are going on and I do a deep dive on them on the Disneyland news review. But going back over to this conversation, the second punch is, okay, we're going to lock it up. We're going to freeze it up. We're going to sell it out, whatever you want to say. And then we're going to show up surprise with a limited time resort ticket for California residents. And it's a three-day ticket where you can get $249 for three days, which I believe it comes down to as low as $83 per person. But if you want to do a park hopper, that's an additional $60. And I believe it's an additional $60 if you also want to add in weekends. And a friend of mine brought up a really great point. He said the Disneyland pricing structure is all wrong because essentially they try to use the price of tickets to scare you from going to Disneyland. And so the more expensive the date, and I'm looking over at the calendar right now for the summer season. So on 4th of July, $149, but the Sunday before that, 164. It seems like 164 is the most for a single day visit. And my friend astutely pointed out that in life, typically when you buy a more expensive airline seat, that means that you are in first class business extended leg room, which is kind of BS, or you're in the back of the plane Jones spirit airlines paying as little as possible. But with Disneyland, you essentially pay the most for your ticket when the park is at its worst. So if you look at the calendar on dates, when there's, a less of a charge, that means they're anticipating less of a demand. But on a day when you're going to pay more for an individual ticket, that means the park is going to be bursting at the seams, which just kind of seems backwards, right? Like on the days when you know everybody's going to go there, make it a low value ticket because it's a low value experience and let everybody just go in there and go nuts. But on a quiet day in February, make that ticket like $300 for the day. But like, yo, nobody's going to be there. It's going to be amazing. You don't need Lightning Lane or Genie Plus or whatever it's called. Fast Pass, Mass, Mass, Blast, Blast. You can just pay 300 and you can just cruise around a empty Disneyland and have the time of your life. But the three-day ticket popped up right when the keys locked up. And it's kind of, for me, the, the math on, well, why do you do one thing when you do the other thing? I always love sort of studying like, okay, you know, move, counter move. And there's probably a lot of value customers that are now blocked out for the rest of the summer. And this $299 or $249, however you, you decide to Disney, uh, what dates work for you and, and what amenities that you need, that $250, $300 family of four, that's $1,200 to 1000 bucks just to get in the gate. You know, you're going to buy popcorn. You know, you're going to buy a piece of merchandise. The kids need ice cream. Everybody wants a hot dog. It just keeps the value customer coming back. It keeps the customer coming back that would potentially just be completely locked out for the summer, spending zero money with the resort. Also, locking the keys up or pausing them up prevents people from being like, well, what do we just upgrade, right? Like, what do we just spend the extra little bit to go up a tier and then we can get more summer days in? just kind of stops that right then and there, put those people on pause and know that in the end of the summer, when the magic key program hits its one year anniversary, prices are going to go, I think significantly up. And then there's the last factor that's got everybody talking about the lawsuit that is pending against the top tier, the, the dream key, the no blockout dates lawsuit. And I mean, were people upset with the rollout on the Magic Key? Yeah, it's not what everybody wanted to be, but it was better than being locked out and doing single ticket Jones. 100% it was the best solution, or, or I'll say better solution than no key or no annual pass. And I felt like if you really looked around, it's like, well, there are no blockout dates. Technically, technically, you are able to go to the resort 365. However, the fine print is as long as there's reservations available for that day. So on one hand, 
there are no blockout dates because you're allowed to go any day of the year. On the other hand, you're not blocked out. It's sold out to you. So is it right? Is it perfect? No. Does everybody have a thousand different opinions about the language? Yes. But I think that the lawsuit is a little bit unjust and it feels a little bit vindictive. It feels a little bit like I'll show you. It feels like an angry customer trying to, you know, scorn the company that did them wrong. Even though I feel like anybody could clearly look at that language and figure out what's up. But it does seem as if that, that scorn or that, that settling the score, Disney doesn't care. The pockets are deep. They were able to sit out 440 days of being closed and really take it on the chin, push a lot of that over onto their low paid cast members, come back strong and make more money than God. They really can do fine without us, without the keys. So that I feel like the people that are really going to feel the price of this lawsuit are people that bought dream keys, people that were making peace with whatever that offering was because those people stand to not get a renewal next year because of a pending lawsuit. The lawsuit originally had six charges. Two of them actually stuck. Everybody thought that pretty much all of them would get thrown out, but two did stick. And so therefore Disney does have to say, okay, well, what's our liability on the dream key? And do we sell tens of thousands of these for another year and expand that liability? Or do we lock it up? keep it inside of a one-year window. And in fact, not even a one-year window. They sold them for 90 days, maybe, tops. So right now, if there is any sort of pending responsibility, it's pretty low. And to open that back up is pretty high. So I feel like in the end, as of most things, the lawsuit will hurt the little guy and the big guy will laugh all the way to the genie plus. Wednesday, June 1st was the beginning of Pride Month here in the U.S., where we celebrate the love and the rights of LGBTQIA plus folks to have the right to love whoever it is that they want to love. And over the years, we've seen Disney really step up the amount of Pride offerings that they have, not only in merchandising, but also in food. If you can put a rainbow on it, put a rainbow on it. And in doing so, you are really making merchandise and, and experiences that uh, apply to a large portion of society. And it is a demographic that should rightfully be served and celebrated as everyone else should be. But the interesting thing is, is Disney jumps on the bandwagon part of making the money. But then, and I'm not going to get into all the details of this, they were giving funding in Florida to people that were doing things that are counterproductive to the LGBTQ plus community and their families. That's as far as I'm going to get on that because it is a Disney shitstorm that I do not feel like getting in the middle of right now. I've been keeping an eye on it. I have my opinions as always, but we're just going to keep it right there for right now. But the LGBTQIA plus cast members are behind a push for 100% of the profits from this year's Disney's Pride collection to be donated to LGBTQ plus organizations through June of 2022. And I think if Disney wants to put their money where their mouth is, this is a really, really great way to do it. And in, in many ways, they kind of have their back against the wall after the don't say gay bill, which isn't exactly the name of the bill. I know. See, I'm trying to do this without getting too much in the middle of it. And it's a really hard thing to talk about without getting in the middle of it, which is exactly what Bobby Chapek found out when he thought he could kind of just say a little. And it's like, no, your move is to say nothing or to go all the way in because the LGBTQ community is a big part of Disney's workforce. It's a big part of Disney's customer base but also a big part of their customer base are people who do not identify with these people's uh, needs, concerns, and rights. So it's a really a, a hard spot in the road 
for Disney to be in. And I'm putting myself in that exact same spot for talking about this and acknowledging this. And trust me, I do enough YouTube to know that the minute that you start talking about any of the diversity offerings of Disney, you either lose a lot of your audience or you get people that tell you that they're done with you and really say horrendous stuff. And that's part of the problem where Disney's at being a legacy brand. A lot of people sort of take the company and think of them as black and white TV, 1955, dad works, mom makes dinner in the kitchen, and everyone is straight, <laughs> right? Like this completely unrealistic view of America. But that's how America looked when Disney was popping. That's how it looked when a lot of these people went to the parks for the first time with their parents or their grandparents or went and saw their first Disney movie. And hey, as we get older, we get more stubborn. I'm not saying these people are all racist and horrible people. I'm just saying they're stuck in a moment in time. And as you get older, it's harder to get used to the new moments in time or harder to sort of change the view of your world. It's not impossible. A lot of people do it. A lot of people keep growing. A lot of people keep becoming better people as they spend more and more time on this planet, but it can't be said for all. So really Disney finds themselves trying to service two different customers at the same time. And ultimately I think the progressiveness of being everything to all people is the better way to play it but it can just get very, very tricky. So with these LGBTQ plus <laughs> cast members doing the push for 100% of the profits to go over to um, LGBTQ plus organizations, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out because this is a opportunity for Disney to put their money where their mouth was and to say, well, we stand by you, we stand by you, but how far do you stand? How far do you stand with your money, which is kind of the biggest way that we can see the corporation vote. Nonetheless, it'll be interesting to see how far do they go with celebrating pride this year. I was in the park this last week and I found one floral rainbow heart in front of the Mickey and Minnie uh, sculpted bushes at the Disneyland hotel that, that stand, you know, on the backside of them is the courtyard where the big pool is, uh, that sits in the middle of the three towers, that fourth DVC towers coming up fast. I saw that one little indication that pride was coming on the streets. Now I know the shops have the rainbow, many ears, the t-shirts, the pens, the keychains, the hand sanitizer. Everybody needs rainbow hand sanitizer. I know the stores are full, but will they actually, put rainbow bunting or flags around the park. I'm going to guess that they're going to probably kind of go hard on the merchandise because that's what they do, but they're going to probably try to steer a little bit clear of it visually in the parks as they know that this is just bringing in more attention than what they want. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how they honor so many of their great cast members and so many of the great citizens of Disneyland that come through the gates while also trying not to make the other half upset. It's a really, really difficult moment in time to be a company that's supposed to service all people when we live in a moment in time when all people do not see the world the exact same way. Last week at the Disneyland Resort, we spent most of the week without the Radiator Springs Racers. They were down at the beginning of the week. They were down over the Memorial Day holiday weekend. But good news, they came back online this past Friday. So this weekend, whoa, slow down. We're back to racing inside of Radiator Springs. The whole problem, as I understand it, is that there was smoke rising from a car and it seems as if the tire was not spinning properly. So you can only imagine at the test track speeds, pulling rubber would then create friction, which would create smoke, which would create the, the smell of fire. Um, and if you've ever been on radiator racers, when it breaks down, 
it can be very intense having that seatbelt on you. Uh, in fact, so intense that one of the most intense moments that me and my wife ever spent at the resort was me doing the thing that you should never, ever do to your wife is like, calm down. Oh God, did I just tell her to calm down? We were stuck on the resort going years back. We had those seatbelts on and the tighter you pulled on it, the less space that it gave you. So we were pretty much just pinned to the seat on the vehicle. Uh, and it took a while for the CMs to come and, and unlock us bonuses we got to see a cool hidden mickey we broke down in the paint shop and when you get out there's behind the way that you would never look on the back side of those red like craftsman toolboxes that sit there in the middle of the tool shed or the, the the paint shop when you look backwards there are very nice pinstriped hidden mickeys so we got to see a hidden mickey we got to walk the racetrack out which is just a graveyard of baseball caps and and ears that are all in the tracks along the side there. And so that part was fun, but being locked in the car was no fun at all. Being locked in one of those cars that was smoking or smelled like fire would be terrifying because even Houdini or MacGyver combined, if they have a love child, there's no way that anyone could get out of those seatbelts. I mean, you are pinned in there. So obviously that is a great concern they had to figure out that that was okay and then they had to retest the, the the attraction which basically means and i don't know this and i know there's lots of cms that listen to the show and you know the exact hour but there's some amount of hours and i don't know what it is we'll just say 10 for the conversation but an attraction has to be able to just cycle for like 10 hours 20 hours 30 hours straight just has to keep going over and over again flawlessly before it is considered safe and ready to reopen for the public so when I was there on Thursday filming my Friday update, the cars were just blazing on the open track. It was actually really fun because of the human error or human factor. It takes so long to load everybody in, pull everybody out. So you don't always see the cars just cruising around, but seeing two sets of cars literally every 10 to 15 seconds rip by, it was a good look. For somebody who's there to catch the vibes and not the rides, it was a really good look to see it. And Cars Land turns 10 years this this summer and a question that i have for everybody in that 10 years we've seen you know refurbishments on all the different rides in fact i saw that mater's junkyard jamboree is going down on the 13th mater way more fun than i ever thought that it would be so we've seen you know some of the buildings we've seen the cozy cones get repainted but we haven't seen the rock work of radiator springs get touched at all as far as i'm concerned I, I don't really recall it ever getting repainted or touched up at all and so i have a curiosity of was it designed to go the long distance and aging will only make it look more real or is there a moment at say the 15th anniversary or 20th anniversary where they know they're going to have to go in there and scaffold and repaint because I'm trying to imagine how you go about putting the scaffolding around that organic shape. Like I know it was there to build it, but when they built it, there was nothing else around it. They had the freedom to put the scaffolding wherever they wanted. They had the freedom to do, you know, some of those weird angles and then slowly deconstruct and go back down. I have the same thought with star Wars galaxy's edge because some of the furthest back spires are starting to look very like sun bleached and white. Now, in the real world with the human eye, the further something is off in the distance, the more blue that it'll look to you. That's just how it works because of our atmosphere and our eyeballs and the color of the planet. So you're used to everything having bluish tints as it goes further back. But the back spires are starting to bleach out and become white. And that is a little bit of a, a contradiction of how our eyes work and how we're supposed to process like an environmental space, like a, a natural organic space as it goes off into the horizon. So I'm very fascinated on these two lands. What's the long-term maintenance of them? And then while I'm talking about star Wars galaxy's edge, each of those buildings are painted like paintings. If you look at any building in star Wars galaxy's edge, they didn't go that one's orange and just take a bucket of orange and paint it orange. Imagineers, craftspeople went through there 
with brushes and painted on the aging. They painted on the rust marks and the staining. So to repaint a dock on doors, for example, or docking bay seven means to repaint it like a painting, which is a lot of work. It takes a very skilled workforce to do that. I mean, I know obviously they, they got that, that person's business card because they did it once, but it's a lot different than putting scrims up in front of the crystal arcade on main street and redoing some of the woodwork, redoing the mirrors, redoing the light bulbs, painting it. And you know, a week later you're good to go. Repainting one of these buildings would take a lot of time, a lot of skill set, and it would also be hard to do in the space of these two areas that we're talking about, Radiator Springs, Rockwork, and anything in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And then it would look very odd for construction walls and scrims to be inside of Batu. So there's a part of me that thinks, and this could be wrong, but maybe the idea is just let it go. It's supposed to be deteriorated. It's supposed to be rusted, supposed to look old. Maybe these artistic renderings on the buildings is a kickstart for where it will go and end up as real deterioration just settles in and takes its place. Maybe these two lands were actually designed to age with time. Bizarre Disney California Adventure News, or DCA, as we like to call it, for the last two or three months, maybe even going back further than that, there have been these construction box walls popping up everywhere in the most random of places. And a lot of times being very close to each other, narrowing the pathways in a way that seems unnecessary. And what these have been doing is, is they've been putting in sidewalk improvements, but I'm no genius when it comes to sidewalks or laying concrete for that matter. But it seems to me that doing it in one strip would be way easier than compartmentalizing your labor and all these different little clusters. So over the last few months, every week when I go to the park, these boxes have changed and moved around, but there's always more boxes to be found. And what's interesting is when the boxes remove, It's not that you notice anything drastically different on the ground other than the new concrete is bright white and doesn't have all the aging and staining as the concrete next to it. And over in New Orleans Square, where they did the massive redo to all the pathways and walkways to make it wider for guest flow and and better uh, viewing areas for Fantasmic, it's a patchwork of textures colors, and all kinds of different surfaces. I even found last week there's one spot, and I'm assuming this is temporary, but it's been painted, maybe painted for a a fix while they're waiting for the proper materials to show up due to supply chain issues. But there's even one part as of last week in New Orleans Square where there's actually wood on the ground, like planks of painted gray wood on the ground. And walking the plank adjacent to Pirates of the Caribbean is on brand, so I will give the Imagineers that. But this has been a very interesting project, and it's kind of all over the place. And it just makes me wonder, is there a more efficient way to do this? And granted, like I said, I don't know anything about concrete work or making sidewalks, but it seems like making one part of the park kind of sufferable and getting it done as quickly as possible and then moving over to the next spot would be better than having your park littered with these famous khaki, light green, lattice-infused go-away walls that have just been all around the resort. And while we're speaking of unique decisions, Avengers Campus has just turned one year old. Everybody probably has a different opinion about the land one year later, and maybe you've not even been to the land yet, so your opinion is TBD. However... What has been fascinating is obviously people like to go there and hang out. 
Marvel has made more money than Star Wars, but Marvel got the short end of the stick for now on the amount of acreage that it was given inside of Disney parks. The Avengers campus, or as I like to refer to it, the Avengers hallway always has a decent amount of people into it. And in DCA is a smaller park. So you're going to feel a land more if it's congested, if it has people in it, than we're over at Disneyland. It's just always flooded everywhere, right? So you can kind of tell in DCA where the crowds are at because it is bigger. It does have more room. And then when everybody moves to one spot, you're like, oh, it's crowded over here. But luckily, you always have the Hollywood backlot to go to if you need to be by yourself and to be with your thoughts because it's empty. However, the Avengers campus has become more, I think, about eating <laughs> because the Doctor Strange show is a cool space. It's my favorite space inside the land, but it's on a very offbeat schedule. You don't exactly know when it's going to happen, and I don't believe that it does happen every single day. There's many times when I walk through there where there's no signs of needing to stand in line or be prepared for anything to happen because it looks like nothing's happening and that's fine. I mean, I think the idea of Avengers Campus was, was supposed to be pretty random. The performance shows on top of the HQ building, which we're all thinking is the facade for the future e-ticket, which I promise you that is coming. Those shows are very random, too. And you don't know when that's going to happen. And when we look at what else is inside there, there's Web Slingers, which always has a very healthy, healthy line. And there's Guardians of the Galaxy, which always has a healthy line over at the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. But Spider-Man and Mission Breakout, those are on the very far corners of Avengers Hallway. Therefore, everybody between point A and point chimpanzee are kind of stewing about looking for something to do. And if Doctor Strange isn't happening that day, and if there's nothing going on on the performance stage on top of the HQ building, where do you go? And it seems like Pim Test Kitchen is the spot. So when you go into Avengers Campus, there's a lot of people eating. There's a lot of people drinking because they have the skillfully named microbrewery there in the corner. But at the cost of trying to figure out seating, there's now seating on the outside of the rails that go around the Pim Test Kitchen. There's a picnic area that is where the eat ticket area should be, which really kind of blocks the sight lines of seeing Cap stand with the Quinjet behind him and the massive Avengers logo behind or below them. It's like if you if you just came to the park for the first time, and I always like to think about people that are coming to the park for the first time or the first time since the Thanos snap. I always try to imagine them coming in that corridor, seeing the Quinjet, seeing Black Panther standing on the other side of it, or Black Widow, or Captain America. Every now and again, Iron Man gets up that far. Below it, there's the big Avengers logo. And then below that, there's Rodney in a stroller having a meltdown because Rodney's parents don't want to go home. They want to keep ripping the park. But Rodney is three and he's done. And Rodney would be doing way better napping in the car on the ride back to Ventura County. But Rodney's parents are saying, no, we're doing this. And I remember what it looked like when that picnic area wasn't there. And it made it way more picturesque. It made it feel way more like a vibe because you could acknowledge the Avengers Jeep that's kind of off to the side, like ready for a quick take away the trees that are on the backside of the Jeep. And not that I don't think people need a place to eat and to rest their feet, because I know that is definitely a part of the Disneyland vibe, but I know the creative process. I've interviewed hundreds of designers and I was a successful designer for uh, two decades of my life. <laughs> like to think I still got the skill set. That's not how it was designed to be. Seats on the outside of the railing around Pim Test Kitchen, a picnic area in front of one of the best photo spots. That's not how the land was designed to look or flow. Also, with the lightning lane over at Guardians, when Guardians has a problem, it can snake over from the 
outside of Guardians, going around to the HQ building. So you have a massive line of people there. You have tables on the other side, taking what could be a, a kind of a pinch point because it's a hard left or hard right turn, depending on which way you're navigating. But now you have to navigate with a line to one side of you, tables and chairs and people sitting on the other side. Where people are sitting, you can always anticipate that there's a stroller kicked out for good measure. So the land isn't really flowing aesthetically the way that it was designed to. And I can't figure it out is this bad on the original design team that made the land? Did they not think about how much seating it would require? Did they also think about a land that doesn't have a lot of attractions or experiences, but dedicated to a brand that people feel very emotionally connected to would want to just kind of sit in there and breathe it in. Like I'm a breathe it in galaxy's edge guy. I love galaxy's edge. I can sit on a table or curb or lean against a wall in there for hours. It feels exotic. It feels like I'm in this different world and aesthetically it is beautiful in every direction. My eye can see notice. I said, I with, with, without an S at the end of it, because I am officially right now legally blind in my left eye. I will be disappearing for surgery soon, but that's another story for another time. However, in Avengers Campus, people that just want to breathe it in, was the breathe it in space not considered? Or is this a middle management decision of just put tables and chairs wherever you can? We need to keep people eating. We need to keep people, you know, enjoying this or, or whatever we can do. Like if they're going to go to the shawarma cart and they can see there's a table right next to HQ, does that increase the sales of shawarma cart? Does that get people going over there and grabbing a shawarma because they can see a place to sit? Because I won't buy food if I know I have to eat it standing. That's why I do not like food trucks. I require two things when I'm eating. Well, three, if you want to include the food, I need a place for my butt and I need a place for my food. I need to be able to sit and I need a countertop. I need a working surface to enjoy my food. Because if I'm like holding a pretzel, but also trying to open the mustard pack, which needs two hands, now one hand's doing two things. It's holding the pretzel and open at the same time. And I just don't have the skill set. I don't have the motor skills or currently the vision to do such a thing. So I would love to know, is this land designed not in a way for people to catch the vibe? Or is this middle management just making bad decisions, not kind of thinking about the overall idea and concept of the land or I'll throw a third one at you. Is there a lot more Avengers campus to come? Is it going to slowly sprawl into the parking lot that's behind the HQ building where we'll see an e-ticket that will be a massive people eater. Will that pop up? Can it grow over into Hollywood land? Like I've been begging for it to. So could the campus literally be designed to be a quaint sort of smaller space because there's an urban sprawl that's a decade away. So everything that I'm perceiving as maybe either a mistake or bad management is just a patch because there's a whole lot more Avengers campus and a whole lot more heroes and a whole lot more adventures coming in a plan that we just can't see yet. And speaking of things to come, last Thursday on the 2nd, we were given a little sneak peek that the Princess and the Frog takeover of Splash Mountain would be open in 2024, when Anika Noni Rose, who voices Tiana, uh, kind of let this slip out on Kelly and Ryan, or is it live with Kelly and Ryan doesn't get any sort of headlining uh, what is the name of that show? I uh, Live with Ryan and Kelly. Wow. I said Ryan got nothing and he's the first name. Goes to show what a feminist I am. Anyways, where's Dunkelman at? This is the thing. I wish, I, I, I pray, that Disney would just commit to a date or just drop something about this Princess and the Frog takeover. Because there's so many people that want to believe that for some reason it's not happening or that for a whole other category of people that I don't want to get into, that it's somehow unnecessary question mark. I think it's very necessary. I think that splash mountain as it is right now is problematic. 
Is it so problematic that people would see it and it's overtly racist when you go around the water? Maybe not for like 99% of the population. But if one person a day goes to Disneyland and feels less than because of a story that's being told around them, which keep in mind, Splash Mountain is kind of themed after nursery rhymes or folklore, you know, sort of fables that were told by slaves to their slave children. Is that what we should be theming a theme park ride around in 2022? And the movie Song of the South, which I have seen, I come from the South. I actually saw the movie in the theater. That's wild. Is where a slave or former slave, Uncle Ramus, quote, one of the nice ones, explains to these white children the stories that he was told as a little boy. Now, whether you pick up on that or not, that's problematic, brother. That just shouldn't be in a place that is the happiest place on earth. If you're going to keep that story there, then we might want to think about taking down great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And we for sure want to remove that new bust of Frederick Douglass because it's kind of conflicting the whole narrative of a Disneyland Everybody is happy. Everybody can find their dreams come true. And like I said, I know that this isn't overtly obvious. I know that many people have wrote it and they've never seen this and they've never felt it. But imagine someone who has. Imagine someone who was floating on the Jungle Cruise, having a great time, and then they came around and the natives popped out of the bushes and they said, hmm, those natives are meant to look menacing and scary. And those natives look a lot like me. Now, I'm a white guy, middle-aged guy. The world's been my oyster my entire life. Who am I to say? But I would say this. I have to trust people. I have to have empathy for people that if something doesn't feel right, then it doesn't feel right. And so if Disney would just finally commit and put a sign out front, like I know they have a sign out front of Tomorrowland and they don't plan on doing any of that stuff. <laughs> But everybody keeps going, hey, Tomorrowland, they're going to do something with it. They're going to do Tomorrowland. Eventually, they're going to do something with Tomorrowland. And they have not committed really anything other than a nice painting about what they're going to do to Tomorrowland. And that painting is just for like the first 15 feet of Tomorrowland. But everybody has this pure feeling that Tomorrowland needs to be fixed because Tomorrowland is perceived as broken because you can't ride anything. And if I can't ride anything, then it's broken. Meanwhile... An attraction based off of ties to slavery. Oh, that's not broken. Why would we fix that? I hope they don't do this. They were just saying that in the middle of George Floyd to just kind of silence everybody. But they're not really doing that. These are real things that people think and say online. In fact, most of the time in the early days when I would do any content about Splash Mountain, the people in the comments were disgusting. And fellow YouTuber, Offhand Disney just did a video talking about this. And at the beginning, he knows what I know. He had to beg people not to be mean to each other in the comments. And I know that this first episode's kind of weird, right? Like I'm back and I'm getting into all these hot topics, but this is the state of Disneyland in 2022. This is Disneyland coming back from 2019. and 2019, people were just kind of living their life blinded by a lot of things that a light has been shined on. And this is Disney moving forward and trying to figure out, okay, do we need to make all of our cast members dress like it's 1955? It's a whole different world. People have tattoos. Men have beard. They have long hair. Some women don't want to wear a dress all day. And some people feel differently than the way that they were born and the way that we identify them. So who's to say who has to wear slacks? One of my favorite words. And who gets to wear a dress? That's up to the individual. That's up to the person that gets up and puts one of those garments on. Shouldn't that decision be made by a corporation? No, it should be made by the individual. And shout out to Smooth JD for understanding that and sticking his neck out and making that one of the big things that he changed about Disneyland. So as we see the park, trying to tie up its loose ends. We find our place of magic in a very interesting spot post Thanos snap. 
They're trying to rewrite some of the wrongs of the past, which I applaud. They're trying to keep two different audiences happy, which is kind of a losing situation. And they're trying really hard after Bobby Chapek put his shoe in the shit of the don't say gay bill out in Florida. And I know that's not the real name of the bill, but that's how a lot of people identify with it because that's how a lot of people feel that it is. We find the parks in a very, very interesting spot. And as somebody who covers the parks, you're always kind of torn. Some people just want to go to Disneyland and they want to escape from the outside world. And I applaud that. There's nothing better than going there and escaping. And a lot of these controversial moves that are being made are to keep providing that escapism. So everyone can go in there and have their dreams come true for a day. I love that. But if you cover the parks as an intellectual and as somebody who loves the magic and the business of the magic equally, which I do, it feels very irresponsible to whitewash all of my opinions and to not bring this part of the story to you. Like you might be riding Splash Mountain thinking it's the greatest thing ever and thinking that it's horrible that they're changing it because Nobody's ever set you down and said, but did you think about writing it as an eight-year-old black kid and then having a couple of questions afterwards to your parents? And now mom and dad are over at Fowler's Harbor sitting down, doing a sit down being like, here's the thing about slavery. Like, is that really a conversation that we want to open up and have that family have to deal with? And I know that's probably something that happens very, very, very rare, but isn't just the chance that it could happen too much because that eliminates the idea of this is a place where dreams come true for everyone. One of the reasons why I've been hesitant to get back into doing the podcast is I'll be honest with you walking around and talking about how great the rides are, how, how romanticizing on the different lands or the different attractions. It means a lot to a niche few, but it doesn't mean enough to enough people to move the needle to justify all the labor and work because I'm not a hobbyist. I'm a full timer, but getting into the real state of the park, talking about ticket sales, talking about them trying to make the park more friendlier, talking about the fact that LGBTQ plus community says, Hey, you should give 100% of the proceeds to all this pride merchandise to organizations that help people that have this pride. These are conversations I really can't have with my past co-hosts because I don't mean this in a bad way. It's just a real way. They're in the Disney pocket. You can't really sit next to me while I'm going wild or talking about things and expect not to have somebody that you work with hear it or have it somehow affect your career. And I don't want to come on here and bang the corporate drum and be like, everything's awesome to protect a co-host. I'm me. I'm rough around the edges. I love Disneyland and I'm a better person when I go through those gates and I still feel the magic. But I also feel a responsibility to talk about it in a realistic, intelligent adult manner. And just because I questioned Splash Mountain or where they put sidewalk boxes, it doesn't mean that I don't feel it and I don't love it. It means that I question it. I hope for a better version of it. And I always am curious about the decision-making on a place that historically has made some pretty good decisions but also a few wrong ones over the years. I got a little bit disconnected when the park started to evolve and change. And it seemed like there was this camp of people that were like, just shut up and talk about the good parts. People threatening me. Oh, I'm out of here. I'm gone. If you're going to talk about this, well, kind of like to think that I'm always recording these for somebody who's my friend. And if you are my friend, 
and we would go to the parks together, we'd have an amazing time. We'd catch the vibes, we'd get some snacks, we'd ride some rides. I'd show you some of my best like stakeout spots. Like, look at that. That's cinematic. Look how beautiful that is. But we would also walk through a pinch point where it got very narrow, and we'd have a casual conversation as friends of like, why do you think they're doing that right now? Why wouldn't they just close down this entire stretch for two days, get it all done, and then have us back in here on Thursday? Why do you think they're doing that? It's just a casual conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to put these out every Monday. It was supposed to go out on Monday, but I had some personal stuff pop up. (laughs) And so it's going out on a Tuesday. But if you'd like for me to look back on the week that was and cover each week exactly how it was. Some weeks will be full of drama. Some weeks will have lots of divisive and negative stories that busted out. And some weeks... When there's not a lot of that stuff that needs to be addressed going on, maybe we'll just talk about how it feels. What the magic's like. I'll give you a magic meter. Remember how after 9-11, another great topic, there was that color chart of the amount of fear we should have for terrorism? Let's take that over, but make it a magic meter. And I can tell you at the park how much magic is there. But on the weeks... When there's something that's more important than the magic, I'd love to show up and break it down, give you my opinions in a long format. And yeah, maybe sometimes I'll have a co-host pop in and out. But for right now, for how busy I am and for all the other content that I'm creating, I feel like this is the best play. And I hope you do too. Friend, that's a look back on the week that was at the Disneyland Resort from Monday, April 30th, Memorial Day, to Sunday, April the 5th. I think next week I'm going to change it so I can just look at my calendar and easily see it a Sunday through a Saturday. I think that'll work better because my brain just doesn't process having to go over one page to see what the date for Sunday is. Even though I know it's just one plus Saturday, I just don't have that kind of brain power anymore. Friends, I hope you enjoyed looking back at the Disneyland Resort in the week that it was. And I hope if I do this next week, you show up and we can do it all over again. So friend, until the next time I see you inside of Disneyland, having a great time, but also kind of questioning, hmm, I wonder why this is happening. I'll see you back here with more Lookbacks on the Disneyland Resort. <laughs>